0: I wanted you to use your imagination a little bit. Suppose that you are leaving the service after this uh, service this morning, and you look down, and you see an envelope, and it has hearts all over it. It's like pink and purple and red. And you're really curious, so you, you pick it up, and, and, and you, you know you shouldn't, but you open it. <laughs> and, and you pull it out, and there's this, this note and you start reading it and you realize this is a love note. You get really curious. Like, there, there must have been some young person in this, in this congregation that was like, wrote this love note for another young person. And then as you read it, you, you, you come across statements that just kind of strike you a little bit odd. This person who wrote the love note is saying things like this Love me. Love me with all your heart. Don't let anyone else distract you from me. Don't let anything get in the way of your love for me. And, and as you think about that, you think, now that seems just a little bit odd because after all, love isn't something that you command. It's not something that can just be ordered like showing up on time for work or showing up for jury duty or, or, or cleaning a, a messy room. It's not a duty in that sense that can be just commanded. I mean, after all, love has to come from what? The heart, right? Right? But when you read the Bible, we encounter statements that are similar to that. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, this is what Moses commanded the people of Israel. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. I mean, we find commandments in the Scripture that tell us not only duties with respect to God, but but delights. Like, we are actually supposed to rejoice in in the Lord. We're commanded to love the Lord. We're commanded to do things that really can only be done if they spring from the inside and not imposed from the outside. This is what we encounter when we read Scripture. Often we can think that when it comes to the Old Testament, the standards were really high and the rules were really strict, and when we come to the New Testament, not so strict. Sometimes we could be tempted to think that maybe Jesus relaxed the rules of the Old Testament, but that's not what we find when we read the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, people like the Beatitudes, like blessed are the poor in spirit, but you can't stop there because a little later on Jesus told the people listening to Him there on the Mount, don't think that I have come to abolish the laws and the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to what? To fulfill. And what does He mean by that? Jesus goes on and says, here's what I mean by that. I mean You know the law that says don't murder? Okay, what's really required is that you can't even be angry with another person. And you remember that law that says don't commit adultery? Well, here's what really is required. You can't even lust because if you lust in your heart, Jesus said after a woman, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And we look at commands like that, and we think, okay, it's one thing to be able to discipline yourself enough that you don't murder somebody. It's one thing to discipline yourself so much that you don't commit adultery, but actually not lusting, actually not coveting, actually not becoming angry. I mean, those are things within, what, the heart. And Jesus A little further on in the Sermon on the Mount said, okay, if there's any more questions about this, then here is something that can just summarize it at all. You just be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's what Jesus said. So what do you think? Did Jesus relax the law? No, He didn't. Jesus actually intensified the law by uncovering the heart behind those commandments. Now, Jesus is not relaxing the requirements of the law at all, And it seems like the law commands things of us that cannot be commanded. The very things the law tells us to do are things that cannot be done by a mere demand. And this takes us to this phrase in our text in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, and it is this here the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see that there? There are some things that the law could not do. There's something that the naked commandments of the law are unable to bring about in our lives. And in that sense, the law has failed. Why? Because the law has failed to bring about an internal change, a heart change in the lives of the people to whom it is commanding. Like you, you can't just do it by being commanded to do it. It requires something deeper, it requires something more radical, it requires something right within your heart and desire. And in that sense, the law has failed. You see what Paul is doing, he's continuing the sequence of thought that we explained last week. He's made this declaration in verse 1. You see that there, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now he's explaining why. Why is it that we're free from this condemnation? Why? Because you've been set free from the law of sin and death. The Spirit of God within you, the Spirit of life, has broken the chains that have bound you to that cycle that 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 endless repetition of sin leading to death, of sin leading to death. The Spirit of God has broken you from that, and now he's explaining that even further. You see the word that begins verse 3, 4. Well, how is it that the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death? This is what Paul is going to do. And remember last week, I gave the analogy of opening the hood and looking into the engine to see how this works. This is what we're looking at now. We want to know is how is it possible that you are free from the law of sin and death? Well, how, this is how it's possible. There's something that the law could not bring about in your life. And Paul's point here is that where the law failed, God succeeds. So we're going to first of all look at the law's failure. And I'm going to break this into two parts to help you understand the sequence of thought here. Verse 3 speaks of the law's failure. And in the latter half of verse 3 and moving on to verse 4, it speaks of God's success. So first of all, God, the law's failure, what the law failed to do, and secondly, what God succeeded in doing. And before we get into this, I want you to think carefully about your own life. There's, there's two kinds of thinking that, that's common to a lot of people. And, and one, one school of thought or one way of thinking it says this, if I can do enough, if I could try hard enough, then I could win God's favor. If I keep enough rules, if I'm self-disciplined enough, then I will get on God's good side. And and if I keep that up long enough, then then at some point I'll be free from condemnation. That is a very common thought, and we find ourselves slipping into that kind of thinking. How do we know that we find ourselves slipping into that kind of thinking? It it happens when you, you feel you feel like you finally were able to please God because of something you did. And then you feel guilty when you fail to do that. There's another kind of thinking that says, oh, I know better than that. Salvation, after all, doesn't depend on what I do. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. Therefore, I'm free to do what I want. And that kind of thinking leads to utter lawlessness, self-centeredness. You see how those kinds of thinking, they're both rooted in error. They're both rooted in a misunderstanding of the grace of God. But we find ourselves thinking one way or the other very often in our lives. Have you ever been tempted to sin? And you're like, okay, I know I shouldn't do that, but but God is going to forgive me. Because after all, salvation doesn't depend on me. That is a a way of thinking that we tend to fall into. Those two kinds of ways of thinking that are are equally wrong and, and yet equally based on this lie about grace is something that we need to confront in our own minds because to the person who says, I can try hard enough, if I do enough, if I keep God's laws consistently enough, then I could succeed in winning God's favor and having no condemnation. But to that, Paul says, no, no, you don't understand. There's something that the law failed to do. By, By mere commands, you cannot please God. So, what is it that the law failed to do? Here it is. The law failed to end sin and achieve righteousness. Now, if you look at verse 3, Paul doesn't tell us specifically in this verse what the law failed to do. To understand that, we need to go back to chapter 7. Because in chapter 7, Paul has just explained what the law couldn't do. This is that uh, vexed agonized section of Scripture in which Paul is saying, I simply could not do the things that I want to do. Look at verse uh, 10 of chapter 7, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? For sin, ceasing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Oh, so he concludes about the law. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Why is it that what is holy and good could not bring about life in him? Why? It is because of his sin nature. Look at the next verse. This is in chapter 7 and verse 13. He asks this, Did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was instead, what was it? Sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What is going on here? Paul is saying this, that my sin nature is so bad, it's, I'm so deeply flawed that what the law does, it's like a big magnifying glass, and it turns the magnifying glass on my sin nature, and it says, see how sinful you are. You can't even keep these commands. And that means that if righteousness will reign and if sin will be snuffed out, it's not going to be the law that triumphs over and tramples sin. Have you ever seen these in, in, a, in a public restroom, a sign that says, employees must wash, their, must wash their hands before returning to work? There's a command, I read that often. Now, when I, see that, when I see that command, it's not like, oh, I'm so glad that every employee washes their hands before returning to work. <laughs> it's just a sign. It's just a command. It doesn't mean that all the hands are clean. It just means that it's a rule. It's like, it's a good rule. Are you glad that that's a rule? I'm glad that that's a rule. But it doesn't matter anything unless people actually keep the rule, right? Right? The law in itself doesn't have the power to bring about obedience in our lives. It's a good law. It's a flawless law. The Word, the Word of God is, is flawless. But what's the problem? The problem is with our hearts. The problem is with the weakness of the flesh. That's the problem. And so what is it going to take? Why is it that the law failed to do that? That brings us to this next question. So the law was weakened by the flesh. Why? Or why did the law fail to bring about righteousness? Because it was, as Paul writes, weakened by by the flesh. It'd be kind of like if someone were to come in here and into this room and they'd start passing out these big stacks of paper and you, you look at it and you realize that it's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And you, you, you flip through the symphony and you're like, I bet this is just beautiful music, but but we can't play it. We don't even have the right instruments, even if we had the skill. And someone comes up here and starts waving their arms and, and, and there's no music. Is there something wrong with, with the score? Absolutely not. It's beautiful, it's majestic, it's triumphant. There's something wrong with our ability to execute it. That's what the law is weakened by the flesh. And this is Paul's point in recording the agony of verses 15 through 24. I'll read some of this to you in verse, this is chapter 7. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. in me. Why does the law fail to bring about righteousness in our lives? It's because of the weakness of our flesh. It's kind of like this rhyme that's often attributed to John Bunyan that says this, run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. We are bound to the law of sin and death, and the question is, how can we be set free from this What is going to actually enable us to fulfill the law and achieve righteousness? So, where the the law fails, this is dealing with the law's failure, but Paul's point is not to dwell on the law's failure, but to actually look at God's success. Okay, so where the law fails, God succeeds. So, here's the second division of our passage here. The first was the failure of the law, and now the second is God's success. And the point is, Paul is making here is that God has done what the law could not do. And how is it that God does that? He did it by condemning sin in the flesh. This is by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, to understand this carefully, we need to sort through these phrases, okay? So, I'm going to ask that you you put your miner's hat on, and because we're going to go deep, okay? But I promise you, after we go deep, we're going to come out, and we're going to breathe a breath of fresh air, and it's going to be okay. But I'm going to ask you, did you think with me? I said when I started the series that understanding the, the sequence of thought is going to take some work for us, but it is work, work that will be rewarded, okay? This is our digging into the Word of God. Now, look at these different phrases. First of all, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful what? Sinful flesh. Now, the, the one thing that you need to understand in order to get this passage is you need to know that Paul is using the word flesh in three different ways. Okay? And, and if you don't understand that, then you'll be really confused about what's being said here. This word flesh, one way in which Paul is using the word flesh is referring to sinful human nature. Sinful human nature. And that use we see here in verse 3 weakened by the flesh. Think of it this way. Weakened by that part of human nature that says to God, not your will but mine be done. That's the flesh, okay? That's the power that we all experience in our lives. It's this power that wants to rebel against God, the flesh. So the law was weakened by sinful flesh. But that's not the only sense in which this word flesh is being used. Because you see here also when he says, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, here's another use of the word flesh. It's not referring to the sinful nature. It's actually referring to just the fact that Jesus had a physical existence. It's like that uh, that phrase that we sang about, come behold the wondrous mystery. Jesus is robed in frail humanity. That means that when, when God became a man... He took upon Himself a body that's subject to the same kind of weaknesses that you and I experience. What are those weaknesses due to? They're because of the fall. The reason why we get sick, the reason why we get frail, the reason why we we die is because of sin. When Jesus took upon Himself a body, when God became a man... He subjected Himself to the same ravages of sin that you and I face, although He Himself never sinned. That's why Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus Himself experienced the temptations that you and I face, but He did it flawlessly. He never sinned. But that's the meaning of the word flesh here. It is simply this, the physical body that Jesus became a human being. This is the same sense in which... John is using the word flesh when it says this in first in in the Gospel of John, chapter one, and the word became what? The word became flesh. All right. So flesh can refer to sinful human nature, as it does in verse three. Flesh can refer to physical existence, as it does in verse four. The end of verse three, when uh, sorry, verse four, when it talks about Jesus, God condemning sin in the flesh. I'm sorry, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And then another way in which the word flesh is being used is that final word in verse 3. He condemns sin in the flesh. That word for flesh is referring to the body of Christ, Jesus' body, as he died on the cross. So here's here's what's being said here. Paul is saying this. How did... How is it that the law failed? It's because of the sinful nature. It's because of our sin. Now, how is God going to set us free from that? How is God going to bring us to life? He is going to condemn sin in the flesh, that is, in the body of Christ. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was bearing in his body our sins. He was suffering for our wrongdoing, all the lust and all the anger and all the bitterness and all the envying and all the violence that that has ever happened in the world and the things that you and I are subject to. Jesus was suffering for that, and God condemned sin in the flesh, in the body of Jesus Christ. This phrase, and for sin, means that Jesus was offered as a sin offering. He stood in our place. He is our substitute. We deserve to be there. Instead, Jesus was the one. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And you'd expect if anyone lived a perfect life, then that person, if anybody would deserve God's acceptance and full embrace and endless love, it would be someone who lived perfectly. But what happened instead? When Jesus came to the end of his flawless, perfect, sinless life, he received the sort of condemnation that sinners deserve. Why? Because he was suffering in our place. And so, this is how God breaks our chains to sin. This is how God fulfills for us what the law could not do. How did God succeed? It was Christ's sacrifice. And the outcome of God's success is this, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. And so again, in answer to the question, how is it that the spirit of life frees us from the law of sin and death? We have this answer. Jesus was condemned for sin in our place. But what is the outcome of this? Look at verse 4. You see those words, in order that. Here is the outcome of God condemning sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ, Him suffering in our place as a sin sacrifice. The outcome is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is, what we could not do because of the, the sinfulness of our flesh that has fulfilled the law, God does by condemning sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. In other words, God saves us not just to get people to heaven, but He saves us so that we can actually glorify Him and live righteous lives. And I think this humbles and thrills us that in us as believers in Christ. We can actually do what the law requires because Jesus has been condemned in our place. And who is it that does this? Look at verse 4. It is not those who walk according to the flesh, but those who walk according to the Spirit. What Paul is saying here is that what is true about people who have been declared righteous, is that they live their lives in the Spirit. And people who are not declared righteous, people who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, they are not walking in the Spirit, but they're walking according to the flesh. Now this takes us back to the question that we talked about at the very beginning. How is it that we can possibly fulfill the law that demands not mere duty, but delight. Like the law is giving us commands that we feel like we can't possibly fulfill by just obeying it because it has to spring from the heart. And here's the answer. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to defeat sin for us. God sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in our place. And he puts in the lives of those who believe in Jesus, his spirit. That's why we had for our scripture reading this morning, this promise from the Old Testament. That God is saying to a people who are just broken and helpless. He's saying, I'm going to do something brand new. I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to put my spirit in you. Because after all, isn't it true about the whole Old Testament that God has given law after law and people have proven over and over again that they cannot keep the law? They're given the Ten Commandments and and on the very day that Moses comes down the mountain with those commandments, he finds what? The people breaking the commandments. And over and over again, they prove that their human nature is such that they cannot submit to the law of God. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to put my law in your hearts, not just to force it from the outside. I'm going to put it right within. And how is God going to do that? He said, I'm going to put my spirit within you. This is like what was going on in the book of Ezekiel when when God gives Ezekiel this vision of a valley of dry bones. He sees these dozens and dozens of, of separated and broken and, and bleached bones all over this, this dry valley. And, and the Lord asks him, can these dry bones live? And then the Lord tells Ezekiel, go prophesy to them. And he gives them the Word of God, and they come together, and flesh and sinews come upon them. And then God puts His Spirit in them, and they come to life, a vast army. That's what God does for us through His Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were, what, dead in trespasses and sins, but we've been made alive in Jesus Christ. This is the nature of those who have believed in Christ. We have an ability, because of God's Spirit, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. I quoted that little rhyme to you that's been often attributed to John Bunyan that says, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. But I didn't quote the whole thing because the next two lines say this, Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. That is, the gospel not only gives us a command to live righteous lives, but it actually gives us the ability to live righteous lives through the Holy Spirit within us. That is what God does through the gospel. That is what God does because of His Spirit within those of us who are believing in Jesus Christ. So that we are not just imposed by His law from the outside, but that a delight and a desire and a joy and a love for God springs from where? From the very inside because God has changed our hearts. That is God, what God does for us through the gospel. Someone has said, put it this way, the gospel produces a more profound obedience than was even possible under the law. It's new obedience rooted in the transforming work of the Spirit and thus is not a burden imposed from without, but a delight embraced from within. To be clear, this does not mean that we as believers are going to live perfect lives. We still have that old nature within us that's tugging at us like a bent wheel in a shopping cart. You're trying to push it in a straight line. It's always veering one way, right? That's what the flesh is like for believers. But we have a new power, we have a new ability, and it is the Spirit of God within us. This is what God does for us. This is how, as Paul explains... God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that is in the body of Christ, in order that what? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What is that righteous requirement of the law? Fundamentally it is this. When Jesus was asked by the scholars of the law, what is the greatest commandment Jesus said, it is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the great commandment, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. You want to know what the very essence of the law is? You want to know what the very crux of what God requires of people it is? It's love God with all your heart and with all your soul and love others, and that is impossible to do without the transforming work of God's Spirit within you. Now, earlier I said that we tend to think in one of two ways. Like, if we don't get the gospel right, if we don't get this idea that, that salvation is not dependent on us, but yet salvation does produce righteousness in our lives, you might be thinking, I must do the right thing to get God's favor. It could be that you approach the Bible looking at it as if it's just a list of rules. What new thing must I do today? What new thing must I do to be able to pry from God's hands the favor I think I deserve? And if so, note very carefully the order. The order of this makes all the difference in the world. We are not saved because we do good things. We do good things because we are saved. We don't do the right thing in order to get God's favor. We do the right thing because God has declared us righteous. That is the motivation for our good works. And people get this wrong all the time. They think that God, God's favor is given to me because I somehow earn it. That is not the case at all. And the person who thinks, I need to do something to get God's favor, has not submitted to the righteousness that God offers you through Christ. What does a person's life look like who thinks in this legalistic sort of way? You may have very high standards. You may do things so precisely. But also, you may tend to look down on people who don't. You may have a sense of pride when you feel like you're getting it all right, and a sense of despair when you don't. That is not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel sets us free to obey God in a way that was impossible by just the law's commands. I said also that there's this other mindset that says, well, God accepting me doesn't matter what I do, and therefore I could do whatever I want. And to you, let me, if that tends to be your thinking, let me warn you, this is not what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that salvation results in a changed life. So no matter what a person may claim about their relationship with God, genuine faith will always produce heartfelt, joy-filled, delight-motivated obedience to God. And what will that look like in a person's life? I want to just point out to you a couple different people in history who have experienced this kind of change. There is a, a man who lived in the fourth and fifth centuries. You may have heard of him. His name is Augustine. And before he believed the gospel, he lived a very sinful life. He had a mistress, even as a teenager. And he could not seem to rid himself of his sin habits. In fact, he recorded in his confessions, he says, I was an unhappy man and I would pray Lord, quote, grant me purity and self-control but not yet. He delighted in the law but he didn't have the ability to fulfill it. And after he turned in faith to Christ, he wrote these words reflecting on his conversion experience. He wrote this, what I once Feared to lose was now a delight to dismiss. Speaking to God, you turned them out and entered to take their place pleasanter than any pleasure, brighter than all light. That was the life transforming inward experience that he had because of the gospel. What the law could not do in his life, God did by transforming his heart and giving him new delights, new desires. That's what God does for us. Another man, America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Like many of you young people, he grew up hearing the gospel. In fact, he liked to play church as a teenager. And he writes this, reflecting on his early days, I seemed to be in my element when I engaged in religious duties. But then he realized, looking back, that his delight in religion was, quote, much self-righteous pleasure. And, And he looked back and he realized that he was committing what is a common error, and that is to take a delight in religious things and mistake it for true grace. But after he trusted in Christ, his life radically changed. Before, he had no pleasure in God's holiness. He had no pleasure in righteousness. And now, looking back on the transformation, he writes this. Listen to these words. The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that he experienced, he said, As I read the words of Scripture, there came into my soul, and as it were diffused throughout my soul, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I have ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being God was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God. And that was the new desire that God has put in His heart. That's what the gospel does. What the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God has done. Believers, this is a power that we can rejoice in. (laughs) This is a power to remember you are not chained to sin anymore. You have within your life the ability, not because of you, but because God's Spirit, to actually fulfill what God wants you to do. You're the power of the gospel. But a warning to those who don't believe the gospel, to those who have not submitted to Jesus Christ and His righteousness, are you trying to do it on your own? You can't you will fail. The only way that your life can be changed is if you believe that what Jesus did on the cross, He did for you, to trust in Him as your Savior. Those of you who believe in Christ, take fresh courage. You will face challenges this week. A remark from a coworker, critical words from a spouse or a family member may snub you, feel pressure to give into discouragement, lust, anger, despair, jealousy, remember in Christ, God has severed the chains that bound you to sin so that in you the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the power of it. And I pray that it would continue to work its way into our hearts and lives. I pray that you would help us to remember, those of us who are believers, to to cling to these truths so that we would not forget that you have set us free from sin, to rejoice in the power of the gospel, and to find fresh delight and courage in what Christ has done for us. I pray for any who have not believed the gospel that you would convict their hearts And help them to to reach out to you in faith and believe. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.